The sermon this morning is drawn from the second scripture reading, and that is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember my first day of Greek class with uh, a professor who was truly an animated man. He was taking us through the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel, and uh, the Beatitudes begin with, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. That's the pattern of the Beatitudes. And in teaching us the Greek language, he emphasized literally how the word blessed sounded in Greek. It's it's almost impossible to say makarioi hoi without actually sounding happy, without sounding cheerful. Because in Greek, the language that Matthew's written in, uh, to be blessed is a happy thing, and it comes right out in the language. You almost can hear giggling. If you go back into the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, Psalm 1 begins with makarioi hoi. It's exactly the same as, as the Beatitudes. And when you look at that term in the Hebrew, Uh, The language doesn't quite do the same thing, but the meaning is the same. And because of that, when uh, you get somebody who explicates the concept of being blessed, they kind of have to stop and really write you a paragraph because there's a lot in it. Whether you're talking about the Greek term or the Hebrew term, it is a happy, blessed, joyful kind of thing to be blessed. Um, The Amplified Bible, in trying to do the term justice, amplifies it this way. Happy, fortunate, prosperous, and enviable. That is the man. Blessed is the man. He is happy, fortunate, prosperous, and to be envied. That's pretty good stuff, actually. There is probably nobody on earth who would say I don't want to be that guy. And if they're saying, that's where they're going to go. The the term is to be uh, really, truly blessed. Blessed is the man. But blessing in Scripture uh, is used in two different ways, and one of them is dependent upon the other one. We can talk about blessed is the man, and the blessedness refers to what he's given the things that make him happy, the gifts and such. But in Scripture, if you're blessed, you have received a blessing. There has been a moment in time, or at least a logical beginning, where blessing happens. 
And in talking about blessedness from that point of view, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 of that book actually makes a theological point with it. If you are in chapter 7 of Hebrews and beginning at verse 6, he's talking about Melchizedek and the fact that he blessed Abraham, and that is an event that happens in history, and we read, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them, that is, the patriarchs and, and the Aaronic line, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And then we could go on, but the point I'm trying to make here is that the writer to the Hebrews talks about blessing happening in time, and there is a greater who blesses a lesser. The writer to the Hebrews just said that. Uh, He's making the point that Abraham, as great as he is, is lesser than the one who blessed him, and it happened at a certain moment. So with that in mind, when you come to Psalm 1, it becomes kind of natural to ask the question, who did this? Who blessed? And more significantly, when did this blessing occur? Because at least in a logical flow, there has to be a greater who does the blessing, who comes to the lesser and gives the blessing. When did that happen? Who did it? Well, uh, it's, it's a Hebrew psalm, and in Hebrew... There is a a strange phenomenon having to do with the way verb tenses work. There aren't a lot of tenses. And the ones that are prominent, the ones that are 95% of what you read, is you have a verb tense that talks about a completed action, and you have a verb tense that talks about ongoing action. But it doesn't give a time signature. You have to interpret that from context, and usually you can, but the, the writer will talk about a completed action that's going to happen in the future, but is looking at it from the point of view of when it's done. Or the, the writer can write about an ongoing action, but he's emphasizing the flow of the action that happened in the past. And so this is a past tense from an English point of view, but in Hebrew you interpret it by context. Well, when you come to Psalm 1... Blessed is the man is a completed action, and that's significant, but it's kind of hard to figure out when it happened. When the, when the Hebrew Bible was first translated in all of history, when it was translated into the, the Greek of what the New Testament would be, uh, called the Septuagint, um, this is the way they translated it, dealing with the time signature, Blessed is a man who went not in the counsel of impious ones, and in the way of sinners stood not, and upon a chair of mischievous ones sat not. Now that sounds a little awkward, but uh, you know I'm just going to read the Greek as it were. But the point is that when they came to translate it, and they asked the question, when did this blessing occur? They said, you know, the man who didn't walk 
in the council of the ungodly, the man who didn't stand in the, the way of sinners, the man who did not sit on the seat of the scornful, the fact he did not do that is testimony that he was blessed. And so the, the, the Septuagint translator said, when did the blessing happen? It happened before any of these events happened. And so they viewed this man who said no to those things and then also said yes to something else. Because the psalm begins with a contrast. You've got the blessed man. He, he doesn't listen to the advice of the ungodly. He doesn't put his feet down in the way that sinful men do and settle into that lifestyle. He doesn't take a seat in the seat of the scorner, which suggests that he's hardened and he's not willing to listen anymore. Rather, something else has happened. He delights in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on that law day and night. And in fact, the word meditate literally means mumbles. And what, what is being pictured is, in the ancient world, if you wanted to really meditate on something, you'd read it out loud. And you'd read it multiple times. And you would literally be lecturing yourself because not only are you reading it, you're hearing it, and you're having to process it to read it. Uh, this was just the way ancient scribes did things, and the psalm pictures that. Uh, somebody who is really getting into the law of God, reading it, listening to it, meditating on it, and he does so because he delights in it. I assure you that it is possible to really have to study something deeply that you don't like, because I've had to do it several times. But it is an absolute delight to study something you really delight in, and this man, the blessed man, rather than walking in the way of the wicked, he not only studies the word and knows it deeply, he delights in it. Well, the Septuagint translator said, all of this is description of the blessed man. It is a working out of the blessing. It's not the actual blessing itself. It's what comes from it. Now, that is very, very different than the way the typical churchman thinks about Psalm 1. He looks at the psalm and says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law he meditates day and night in his law. The average Christian says, Yeah, uh, you get blessed if you do that stuff. You, you, you say no to, to the counsel of the ungodly. You refuse to, to take your stand the way sinners do. You don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Uh, you, you stomp your foot and say, I'm going to love the, the word of the Lord, even though I'm up to reading Leviticus and I don't understand a word of it. Uh, I'm going to love it because I'm going to do it, and I'm going to stomp my foot and be it. And after I do that, God will bless me. Well, the Septuagint translators didn't see it that way. They saw this as outflowing of having been blessed. And uh, interestingly, others also who are fairly well versed in the Hebrew Bible, when they translate it, they translate it the same way. Uh, in teaching world religions, one of the things that I have to use when I teach Judaism is I have to use the Tanakh. This is the 
this is the official English translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, and not a Christian one was involved in translating it, totally Jewish, and not that great of a translation. If you go to, Galat- if you go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, uh, you don't find that the, wo- the seed of the woman is singular, which the Hebrew actually says, they make it plural, the seeds of the woman will stomp on the heads of the serpent, and what they mean by that is Israel will ultimately defeat the devil. So there's, there's a little political commentary in the way they translated things. But when you come to Psalm 1, these utterly Jewish translators who are working with the Hebrew translate it just like the Septuagint. And if you go to the introductory articles in here, they diss the Septuagint. In fact, they say uh, the, the Christian movement came out of the Septuagint because it was translated too literally. If they had only paraphrased more, we wouldn't have Christians. <laughs> I'm not going to read it. You can read it afterwards. But it literally says that in the introduction. But when they translate it, they do it the same way the Septuagint does. Happy is the man who has not followed the counsel of the wicked, or taken the path of sinners, or joined the company of the insolent. Rather, the teaching of the Lord is his delight. And he studies that teaching day and night. So uh, they've got no... no uh, theological acts to grind in our school, but they translate it as this is not the blessing, it's the description. So where do we find the blessing that leads to it? Well, maybe it's in the next verse. We get to verse 3 and we read, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season." whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Here, again, the average Christian would say, well, this must be it. Because the river of water is the law of God. That's, that the imagery is that he delights in the law of God, he's studying it day and night, and that study is like the water of a river beside a tree nourishing the tree, giving it life, causing everything to bloom. That's the blessing. Uh, He studied the word. He loves it. That's the blessing. Well, just looking at how the psalm is structured, and seem to stand because verse 3 is emphasizing the permanency of the righteous. Now, the word righteous hasn't been used yet, but it's going to be used in the second half of the psalm And the entire psalm is a contrast between the ungodly and the righteous. And in the third third verse, the psalmist is saying, you ever see a tree planted by the rivers of water? What's it look like? It's healthy. It's verdant. It has roots that go down deep because the water is feeding it, and it's going to get the water. And it's going to be there. If you want to chop down a tree and you want it to be easy, uh, don't chop down a tree by the rivers of water because it's going to be the hardest one to chop down. Uh, It's it's leaves which nourish it just like the roots nourish it. Those leaves are healthy and they've caused the tree to be strong. And these are the kind of trees that, that just generally you can't get rid of. But the next verse is a contrast to that, and it's 
transientness. The tree planted by rivers of water, it's going to be there a long time. But what does the next verse say? The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So you've got a contrast again, and with contrast you basically have description. The blessed man is permanent. The blessed man is not going to be swept away. Uh, To use the words of our Lord, he's going to be like the man who built his house on the rock, not on sand. He's not going to be swept away by time. He's not going to be swept away by weakness. When the storm comes, he's going to endure. But the wicked are going to be the man who builds his house upon the sand. He's going to be swept away. He is transient. The wicked are here today and they're like smoke and they're gone. That's what the psalmist is contrasting. And I'm now breaking the flow of my sermon a little, but an important point needs to be made here. When we were talking about the Proverbs this morning, there were three Proverbs in chapter 12 that talk about the righteous being permanent. The righteous being solid and not being blown away. The message of the world that you will hear 24-7 is that those who take the Bible at face value and love the God of the Bible, those who are converted people, you are on, quote, the wrong side of history, end quote, You are old-fashioned, in quote. You are going to be swept away by history and something new will replace you. You hear that 24-7. That is what they want you to think. That is what they want you to believe. The dirty little secret is that's been said to God's people for 6,000 years. There has been the prophecy of the end of the people of God in every generation. I forget which of the French revolutionaries declared in a hundred years there will be no more printing of Bibles, there will be no Bibles in houses. The Bible, if you find it, will be an antique found in a uh, museum. And then a hundred years later, to the date, he was dead, of course, but his house had been bought by a book company that was publishing Bibles in his former living room. The, the rumors of our demise have been greatly exaggerated. But it's not because of us, it's because of the blessing. Our permanency is because we've been blessed. And the wicked don't have that blessing, so they will be like the chaff. We remember the name of that revolutionary, except, ironically, I don't, or I would have used it, but we do. I mean, it's in books. Um, But his way of life, his way of thinking, totally gone. I mean, you have wicked thoughts, but they totally mutate. They they always look different in different, different generations. Righteousness remains the same. It's permanent. But having taken that digression, the psalmist is still not telling us when the blessing happened. He's still describing the effects of the blessing. The righteous have been blessed, and this is what's happening to them. And you even go down into verse 5, and you see that 
because the contrast continues, therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Transience follows them into the day of judgment. They have been like chaff which the wind has blown away in this life, and when we get to the judgment day where the Lord Christ sits upon his throne and separates the sheep from the goats, transience follows them into eternity. They do not stand at the judgment. They do not stand among the righteous in that day. They are blown away into God's wrath and disfavor. The righteous continue. And really, that's the only way those promises in the book of Proverbs and everywhere else in the scripture can really find their rootedness. Uh, if, if the righteous are like a tree planted by rivers of water and they remain, uh, that only works if there is an afterlife that God loves you and he takes you to himself. Because otherwise, Solomon will tell us in Ecclesiastes, you know, I look around the world and I see that the wise man and the fool both die. And I see the wicked die, but so does the righteous. And sometimes I see the righteous treated as the wicked. And sometimes the wicked treated as the righteous. If there's not a judgment day, if there's not a Lord Christ to establish justice forever and in all things, uh, the promise of permanency isn't all that big of a deal because it's not really fulfilled. But thanks be to God, it does get fulfilled because the day of judgment comes and the wicked don't stand in the judgment, they don't get assembled with the righteous. Their transientness goes into eternity. But still we don't have when the blessedness happens. Uh, I realize the sermon is sounding very technical, and I, I don't mean for it to. But, but some of the things I'm sharing, you really kind of ought to know because it helps to interpret the Bible. Uh, Hebrew poets oftentimes write in a certain pattern that scholars call a chiasm. And that refers to the Greek letter X because it kind of looks like one. You have a major point, we'll call it point A, and then you have point B and you have point C, and then you have parallelisms that kind of match that. You go from point C to another point C, and then you go to a point B, which parallels point B, and then at the end, you have point A paralleling point A. You find that all over the Hebrew poetry. If you go looking for it and you know it's there, that pattern's everywhere. And so what you often have is you have the Hebrew writer introduce something at the beginning of a psalm, for instance, and he doesn't really resolve it until the end of the psalm. And he began with saying, blessed is the man. To be happy, to be envious, to be envied, to be fortunate, really to have everything that people want is the man who is like this. And the reader is asking when and how. How does it happen? Well, verse 1 is paralleled by verse 6. Verse 6 begins with the word for, which means because. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. See, the, the psalm is written in this pattern, and he wants you to know when the blessing happened, 
but he saves it for the end. When were the righteous blessed? When did that happen? Well, it happened at the very beginning of, quote, their way. And it happened all the way through their way. The term way refers to the entire experience of a person living. And the psalmist says, you want to know when God blessed the righteous? It's the moment they came into existence. The Lord knew their way. And boy, does that term know really hit you. Um, The term know is yada. And it's the same term for know that you find in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. And there we read, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. So, uh, husbands know wives, and children result. Um, That's just kind of the way it works. But it's not the knowing where you know how your wife is dressed, like we were talking about before the sermon. It's not you know that your wife likes animals. It's a little bit more intimate. It's a little bit more passionate. And again, going to our Jewish friends, I noticed in the Tanaka, they really got that. The way they translate verse 6 is, For the Lord cherishes the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is doomed. Now, that's not bad. That's a, a pretty good, that gets at what's happening. The Lord has cherished the entire way of the righteous before they were converted, before they were out of their mother's womb, before they could talk, before they did anything, let alone before they loved the word or said no to the world, the Lord cherished their way, everything about them. The Lord chose to intimately love. And he walks with them through their way. And this is when the blessing happens. And this is what the blessing is. Why does someone love the teaching of the Lord? Why, why does somebody hear the voice of God in the Bible and cannot put it down? They know that God is talking to them and, and it fills their soul. And another man, nah, I mean, he, he learns it. He knows facts about it, but eh, whatever. Why is that? It's because throughout the entire way of the righteous, throughout the entirety of their life, Every moment of their life, the Lord cherishes them. He is with them. He is around them. They hear his voice in the scripture. They say no to the counsel of the ungodly because God is there. It's not their strength. It's not their passion. God has been with them from the moment they were a zygote to their coffin. And that's the blessing. And what results from that is saying no to the world. What results from that is that they are permanent. What results from that is that what they do do prosper. God has cherished them, held them fast. Uh, This is all over the scripture. Listen to what God says to uh, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, 
before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And that's our work. That's yada. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. You ever have a zygote go, you know, I'm wondering what I'm going to do with my life. Maybe I'll be a prophet. Doesn't happen. God knew Jeremiah, cherished him, loved him. He hadn't done anything good or bad. He certainly had not been converted yet. But God cherished him, loved him, and set him apart to be a prophet. The Apostle Paul, we're going through Galatians. Paul talks about what happened to him. And in chapter 1 and verse 11 through 17, this is what he says. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia turned again to Damascus. So Paul, walking away of wickedness, walking away of absolute, wrapped in, in human tradition, um, doing everything in his power to hate God and, and destroy his works, God, from his mother's womb, had said, that's going to be my apostle. That's going to proclaim my son. He is chosen and when it pleased God, God did not politely ask. God threw him from his mouth, blinded him, and said, I have a wonderful purpose for your life. And Paul couldn't say no. Amen. Because the righteous are cherished. They are cherished from the moment they are. Their creator has chosen them he cherishes the way of the righteous. But there's another way talked about. This is a psalm of, of uh, contrast. There is the way of the wicked. And it doesn't say the Lord cherishes the way of the wicked. In fact, the parallel is the way of the wicked will perish. What has made the difference? Has it been what the righteous do? Has it been what the wicked does? No, the difference is, but the Lord cherishes. God intervenes. God loves the righteous. God makes a separation. God brings them to himself. He blesses them. God gives them that love of his word. God makes them to draw the word like a tree draws water. God establishes them. The difference is God himself. What could be said is God is a priori. Before any human action, before any human will, before a man does anything good or bad, God. 
Now, uh, you may wonder where the sermon came from. Uh, I started this week uh, planning on preaching Galatians, and we are working our way through Galatians, and we're going to go through it. But we're moving into the last third, as I've said several times, and the focus of the last third is walk in the Spirit. This is, is Paul's remedy for uh, false teaching. It's Paul's remedy for human destructiveness, walk in the Spirit. And as I meditated upon that, I came to realize there's a couple requirements for that to happen, and one of which is the Spirit makes himself available to you. Because the Spirit doesn't make himself available to everyone. So if you're going to walk in the Spirit, uh, you have to have the Spirit extend himself to you first. And as that thought of a prioriness hit me, I began to meditate on this psalm, and uh, the, the life of Christ, because uh, there, there's an ancient tradition of, of interpreting this psalm, blessed is the man, is singular, and just like Paul in chapter 3 of Galatians interprets the seed of Abraham as singular, uh, many have interpreted Psalm 1 as a reference to the Messiah, blessed is the man, blessed is Jesus of Nazareth, um, his life absolutely depended upon God the Father and God the Spirit, too. He was fully man as well as fully God. The Father was with him in heaven. The Spirit was with him in heaven. The Father sent him to the world. The Father was a priori. The Spirit was given to Christ. It settled upon him it empowered him. When Christ talked about where the power of God was coming from, he always pointed to the Spirit. Um, all the way through his ministry, our Lord Christ depended on God the Father and God the Spirit because he's fully man and he's living out what human life is like. He's showing us God is a priori. If God doesn't extend grace, there's no grace to be had. And so that dominated my thoughts, and I realized uh, the, 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 the wonderfulness of grace, the amazingness of grace, it means God loves you when you're not lovable. It means God loves you when you're wicked. It means God decides to plant you by rivers of water whether you want to be there or not. Thanks be to God that God is first. 